Last week we looked at the supremacy of Scripture and I would encourage you if, you if you weren't here to go online and download that message or at least listen to it. I think it is would be helpful. I know it was helpful to me. We're back in Mark now. We've been progressively moving through the book of Mark and this morning we're looking at flawed faith. And if you're this is your first time here, if you open the bulletin on the inside of the bulletin, the left-hand side is an outline that you can follow along. I don't know about you, but uh, I had to become a diamond expert <clears throat> at some point in my life. We, my wife and I got married very young. I won't tell you how young, but very young. And so uh, what I got her for a ring was, it was a ring, but there wasn't, <laughs> there wasn't much to it. So I think it, I think it was at 10 years. Was it later on in life, we, uh, I tried to correct that and, and got her some sort of a diamond. But at that point, I became... Uh, somewhat of an expert in diamonds. But if you don't know, diamonds are partly valued or priced based on their clarity. They have four C's. This is not an explanation on how to determine the value of a diamond, but I'm going to make some points here. Clarity, though, that particular category is related to the number of flaws that exist on the surface of the diamond or inside of the diamond. So it's very simple. The more flaws that are in the diamond, the less brilliant, the less beautiful that diamond will appear, and, and it is that those flaws that significantly reduce the value or the price of a diamond. These internal imperfections are sometimes referred to as clouds. They call them clouds because that's kind of what they do to the diamond. They can reduce a diamond's ability to transmit or scatter light. In other words, they, they reduce the, the bling-bling factor of the diamond, to put it in modern-day vernacular. The wow factor, the diamond. You know what I'm talking about? When a woman has a very large diamond and the light hits it at just the right way, it's blinding. It shatters you because the light goes in and reflects off the inside of that diamond and the cuts and boom! It just, it just lets you know how much money was actually spent on that thing. <laughs> There's a grading system that they use, actually, for diamonds and for their clarity. And it's divided into six categories and 11 grades, if you can believe this. The lowest category is simply called included. That's funny, because it used to be called imperfect. But they, I guess they didn't like that because they sell these included diamonds, and someone probably didn't like buying a diamond that was called imperfect. So included, the idea is that within this diamond there are inclusions, they'll even say that. There are things that exist that are foreign to the diamond that shouldn't be there. Okay? And they have this scale. It's just fascinating. It starts with I, which is included, and then they have slightly included, and then very slightly included, and then very, very slightly included, and then internally flawless, and then flawless. That's the last category. And along with all of these categories, as you move through them, the price can jump significantly. Listen, I thought about diamonds because we're going to talk about our faith today. And our faith, like diamonds, is flawed. It is flawed. It has imperfections. It has, if you will, clouds that reduce the brilliance and glory of our faith. We're going to talk about that. God has not given us a six-category scale by which we can judge the quality of our faith. But like almost all diamonds, as I've said, our faith, to one degree or another, beloved, it's flawed. It has imperfections in it. And as a result, that wow factor, that brilliance, that beauty, that shining light, that glory, if you would have it, is diminished. 
But unlike diamonds, our faith can be improved and it can increase in its brilliance and in its beauty. I mean, once you buy a diamond, wherever it is on the scale of clarity, that's where it stays for life. But our faith is not like that. Our faith grows. Our faith improves. Our faith can become more beautiful, less included, having less clouds. So saying all that, let's look at the text this morning, if you would with me. Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. And would you just follow along with me as we read from God's Word. Verse 14, And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw Him, were greatly amazed and ran up to Him and greeted Him. And He asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered Him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, the disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So this morning we're going to discover two lessons, hopefully, about our Christian faith that we must learn so that our lives will glorify the Lord. That's what we're going to be doing. Just two lessons about our Christian faith that we must learn so that our lives will glorify the Lord, so that they will be beautiful diamonds. The context here, just to remind you, is verse 4, verse 14, where it says, And when they came to the disciples two weeks ago, let me just remind you in case you weren't here or by way of memory, Jesus and three of the twelve disciples, only three, Peter, James, and John, were coming back now from their trip on the mountain on the high mountain, where they experienced the glorious transfiguration of Jesus. Okay, And we talked about that. We won't review that again two weeks ago. The other nine disciples had been left behind, presumably at the bottom of the mountain somewhere. Jesus returned from this really unique and very fantastic experience up on the mountain, only to come down and encounter his, his other disciples in an argument with these scribes. And let me remind you about scribes. Scribes were considered the biblical scholars of their day. In other words, 
They were the experts in the law. In fact, if you have a New International Version translation, it says they're not scribes. It actually identifies them as teachers of the law. That's what they were. These scribes were identified by Jesus as one of the groups who would fully reject Jesus and be partially responsible for His death, for His crucifixion. Chapter 8, verse 31. Chapter 10, verse 33. In other words, the scribes, as we've seen if you've been with us in Mark, were hostile to Jesus and were hostile to His followers. And they were there, as they had been before, to stir up some trouble. Now, one additional point. That's the context. And we'll get to the outline here in just a second, but bear with me. In this story, the boy's sad condition we see is described by his father. Beyond the fact that the boy is unable to speak, right? he identifies him as being mute, his other symptoms are closely related to epilepsy. Epilepsy is something you may or may not be familiar with, but the way he describes it, it appears like it's very close to epilepsy. It's a a disorder of the brain that is characterized by seizures. Some can be very violent, in fact. But in this case, this is not simply epilepsy because Jesus' response to this boy makes it clear that the problems are not a result of a simple brain disorder, but a demonic spirit. So this is unique. And also in verse 25, we see that this demon is determined to destroy This child, chapter 9, verse 25, it says, And when Jesus saw the crowd came running together, he rebuked the... I'm sorry, 22, it says, And it often cast him into fire, into water, destroying him. In other words, this is greater than just epilepsy. There's 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 something going on within this child. He's putting him purposefully in danger. And then you see in verse 25, that's what I was going to look at, that Jesus identifies this as a demon. When Jesus saw it, the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit. So Jesus himself does not believe this is simply epilepsy. Now, having said that, it is important to remember that Jesus has healed people on other occasions and the disease or disability they had, according to the Scriptures, had nothing to do with demonic activity or possession. And you can write these down if you want to look at them later. Mark chapter 1, verse 31. Chapter 1, verse 41. Chapter 2, verse 11. Chapter 3, verse 5. Chapter 5, verse 29. Chapter 6, verse 56. Chapter 7, verse 35. And chapter 8, verse 25. Why would I tell you that? It would be wrong to automatically then attribute someone's mental or physical problems to the devil or demons. That's the point I want to make. It would be wrong to do that. In this particular scenario, according to the text, according to the Word of God, according to Jesus Himself, this boy's ailments were caused by demonic activity. Additionally, when Jesus cast out this unclean spirit, in verse 25, He calls it a mute and deaf spirit. A mute and deaf spirit. This does not mean the Spirit's sole responsibility or job as a demon was making people mute and deaf. Or that the Spirit itself was mute or deaf. I mean, if the Spirit was deaf, I don't know how He heard Jesus tell Him to come out of Him. So it doesn't mean that. But it's best understood as describing the effects the evil Spirit had upon this boy in this particular case. 
So beyond the fact that the boy was mute, it appears that there must have been some form of deafness in this child too. Because that's what Jesus is describing when he calls the spirit mute and deaf. And even the father's boy in Mark chapter 9, verse 17 says, Teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. In other words, this is just what the spirit is doing to this boy in this particular case. One commentator writes it like this, Although Jesus calls the spirit in this story a mute and deaf spirit, this seems purely descriptive of the patient's condition, not of the spirit itself. There is no evidence in Scripture for a multitude... Wait, I just want you to hear that. Remember we talked about the supremacy of Scripture? What that means is is that everything we think, everything we say, everything we talk about, everything we feel must be based upon, built upon the Word of God. Not upon what someone else has said, not upon even our experiences. So our experiences must be tested by the Word of God to understand them rightly. To interpret them rightly. So, the writer says, there is no evidence in Scripture for a multitude of evil spirits, each being responsible for some particular sickness. Nor is it anywhere suggested that such spirits have separate personalities. They are simply local manifestations of the power of evil. Jeremy, why are you spending so much time talking about this? Well, within our culture, there is something known as deliverance ministries. And maybe you've encountered them, maybe you haven't, I don't know, but if you stay a Christian long enough, you will encounter these ministries. And what they teach is that the majority of people's problems are somehow related to demonic activity, and therefore the demons have to be cast out to deliver someone from the bondage that the demon has brought that particular individual under. Is that biblical is the question. And without getting into a long discussion about that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you to search the Scriptures to see what does the Word of God have to say about that. Is that a biblical mandate? Is that what the Bible is teaching? Or is that something that people have invented in their own mind? For instance, you'll hear people say within the Christian community, maybe he has a demon of alcoholism. Or he has a demon of adultery. Or a demon of anger. Or a demon of pornography. Or maybe a spirit of lust. Or a demon of depression. Or a demon of migraines. And if you think I'm kidding, I'm not, sadly. If you think I'm exaggerating, I'm not, sadly. And so in these deliverance ministries, they attempt to help these people. I'm not questioning their sincerity. I'm just questioning whether it's biblically accurate. They attempt to help these people by casting these demons out to help them with their depression or their anger or their lust. Instead of talking about the real issue, which in many cases is sin. And in the case of depression, it could even just be a chemical imbalance. Here, I took this off the website, just one of the many deliverance ministries. And this is instructions on how to cast out the demon alcohol. Just read it to you, just so you understand. This is for real and this is, this is prevalent in the Christian community. Demon alcohol rarely lives alone. He usually keeps various of his demon friends with him, such as drugs and tobacco. That's questionable too. Now tobacco is a demon. Or sexual promiscuity. He also frequently attracts and lives with other harmful spirits, such as chronic failure, confusion, deception, unreliability, and low self-esteem. 
That's right, if you have low self-esteem, that's because you have the demon of low self-esteem and you just need to get that sucker out of you. But people do believe this. This is what makes it difficult. And they're sincere. The disease called alcoholism is very difficult to treat successfully because demon alcohol is always ready to jump back in after he has some, someone or has somehow been kicked out. His friends are waiting for him and they keep drawing him back in. Therefore, when we cast out demon alcohol, we must also cast out all his friends. And this is a very big job. So then the writer goes on. I wish this was just you know one guy saying this, but it's not. So here's what he goes on to say. Listen, you need to become a believer. Okay. I'm good with that. You need to become a believer in Jesus Christ, get saved. And then once you become a believer, pray this prayer. Like some magical power in it. So if I, if I have struggle with alcohol, it must mean I have the demon of alcohol in me. Now I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, so I'll pray this prayer. I'm not going to read you the whole thing, but just some to show you. Attention, evil spirits dwelling here. Okay, that's a, I just let you know, theologically, that is incorrect. Because now what the writer is suggesting is this person has the Holy Spirit indwelling them and there's still evil spirits residing somewhere inside of this individual. That is not biblical. But we'll go on. Know ye that I am working for the Lord. His power and His glory fill my heart. His love directs me here for you, to you today. I know that all of you will want to leave as day by day the Lord more fully grows and daily you are more and more distressed. But now I speak to demon alcohol. And now in parentheses it says, and all his evil friends may listen in. In 1 Corinthians 5, you can check it out for yourself, there was an immoral man in the church. Paul said, put him out of the church. He didn't say, cast out the demon of lust that is in him. You won't find that in Scripture, beloved. I just want you to be aware of that. And sometimes they will go to this passage and they will say, see, here, there's a mutant deaf spirit. And somehow from that derive, there's a spirit of alcohol, there's a spirit of lust, there's a spirit of pornography. Listen, if you're caught up in pornography, it's because you are acting in lust. It's not the demon making you do it. So, biblical, that's what we want to be. If you're going to believe something, make sure it's actually coming from the Word of God and not just something someone told you or you grew up with or, or whatever. There's a lot of confusion out there. Now, that brings us to our first point. Christian faith will be challenged by doubts. It will be. So our faith will need to grow by God's grace, beloved. Jesus wanted to know what the argument with the scribes was all about, according to verse 16. And the man from the crowd spoke up. Look back at the text with me. Mark chapter 9, verse 17. Teacher, I... He says, and someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever, he sees it, whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they, they were not able. This man originally brought his son to see Jesus, no doubt hearing the miraculous things he had done. And hoping, right, that his son would be healed. This, this kid has this infliction upon him since childhood. And this was just not a normal sickness. Besides all the seizures and the falling down, this, this demon was casting him into fire and water, trying to kill the child. Which means that the father would have to constantly run around and, and keep track of his son, that he might not lose his life. 
Besides that, all the embarrassment that would come about. I mean, we get embarrassed when our kids act up a little bit, right? But this kid's really out of control. Can't speak. Apparently, he really can't hear. However, when he arrived, this father, Jesus wasn't there, right? Because Jesus is up on the mountain with his other three disciples during this transfiguration. Previously, in Mark chapter 6, verse 7, we read and we looked at that Jesus had sent out his twelve, the twelve disciples, in teams of two as his representatives. And he gave them the unique authority to cast out demons and heal the sick. Specifically, that's what the text says. Now, according to Mark chapter 6, verse 13, the twelve disciples were successful at doing those very things. That is, healing the sick and casting out demons. So when this man showed up with his demon-possessed son and didn't find Jesus to help him, you know what he does? The next best thing. He asked Jesus' disciples to help his boy. It's probable that the man, we don't know, but it's probable that the man had heard reports about the supernatural power displayed by Jesus' disciples as well. Or maybe they just told him, listen, the Master gave us the ability to cast out demons. We'll do it. No need to wait for him to come back. We don't know. But either way, he ends up asking the disciples for help. However, this time the disciples were powerless to do what they had done multiple times before, that is, cast out demons. Now, this certainly would have confused the father and left him wondering if his boy could really be fixed. Maybe his boy was beyond fixing. Although the exact argument, beloved, with the scribes that the disciples were were having is not recorded, it is clear from the text that it had something to do with the failure of Jesus' disciples to cast out this evil spirit. Because when Jesus asked, what are you guys arguing about? The Father brings up this particular point and event. Well, I asked your disciples to, to heal my boy, to cast out the demon, and they were unable. Knowing about the hostility of the scribes towards Jesus and their previous attempts to discredit him before the people, as we saw in chapter 3, verse 22, and chapter 7, verse 5, it is reasonable to believe that at this moment they jumped on the opportunity here to humiliate the disciples of Jesus and their failure in this particular case to cast out this demon. In their attempts to raise the level of skepticism about Jesus' authority, hoping maybe to prevent other people from becoming his disciples. You get the scene? Jesus is gone with the three. Here's the nine. Man comes. The scribes are kind of keeping an eye. I'm just looking to trip them up any way they can or his disciples. The disciples say, we can, we can do it. They fail. Now the scribes go, huh, yeah. That's because he's not even the Messiah. You don't even have any real power. We don't know exactly the conversation, but we can assume that that's what was going on pretty safely. So here's the Father, beloved. Just think of the situation. He would have been challenged not only by the failure of Jesus' disciples, right? He brings the boy... He's probably heard of Jesus' disciples' ability, certainly of Jesus' ability to heal. He was bringing him to Jesus. But probably heard of his, the disciples' ability too. He brings the boy and guess what? This time, it's never been recorded before, they can't do it. 
Beyond that, he's there in the crowd as these scribes who are hostile to Jesus and his disciples begin to argue, no doubt raise the level of doubt and skepticism in their minds. And he's hearing all this. All of this would have challenged him to start to doubt what he originally thought was true, that Jesus could heal his boy. So look back at the text. Mark chapter 9, verse 21, 20 through 24. Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. He has often cast him into fire, into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, he's referencing the man's statement, if you can do anything. If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And the father understood what Jesus was saying. And it says, immediately the father child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. Let me make a, a quick comment because this is just a, this is a fantastic passage for for us as believers in Jesus Christ. And we're going to explore it a little bit here, but I just want to point something out. Another passage that's ripped out of its context and used to, to wreak all kind of havoc in the Christian community and mess them up about their thinking. It says here in verse 23 that we just read, all things are possible for one who believes. It does not say, by the way, all things are actual. It just says all things are possible for one who believes. This statement must be understood, beloved, in light of its context and it cannot be understood in a way that would contradict another passage in Scripture. That doesn't make any sense. Since ultimately we may have 40 authors writing this Bible, but we have one superintendent, one author, the Holy Spirit, and he doesn't contradict himself and he's not crazy. So he wouldn't say in one passage something that is completely contrary to what he has said in another passage somewhere else. So in this context, it does not mean that our faith can accomplish anything without exception. It does not mean that. But that those who have faith will set no limits on the power of God. Those who have faith will set no limits on the power of God. One writer puts it this way. We are not called to put God to the test by irresponsible believing prayer for what may well be our own human desire, but not be God's will. We are free to ask what we will, but only if it is what God wills. Mark chapter 14, you can write these down, look at this later, Mark 14, 35 and 36, you will see this exact situation with the way Jesus handles what God has for him on this earth. Also, 1 John chapter 5, verse 14. You can write that down too. And let me just read this. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him. That if we ask anything, alright, anything, according to His will, He hears us. What does that mean? If I ask anything and it's not according to His will, He refuses to hear us. Which is good, beloved. It's actually good. You don't want something that's not according to His will. 
One writer says, faith sets no limits on God's power and submits itself to His will. That's what the writer is saying. That's what the context is. But again, and we could talk even more about this, we have something called the faith movement. And it goes something like this. What the mind of man conceives and the heart of man believes that man can achieve. Doesn't that sound good? Sounds good, man. Actually, I could be a motivational speaker right now. That's right. You want that big promotion? Conceive it right here. In your, you want that brand new, nice, shiny car? You want that big house? You want that vacation? Conceive it here in the mind. Believe it without doubting in the heart, and you will have it. Do you know that book that came out, The Secret, that Oprah and everyone else under the sun promoted? And If you don't, that's okay, good. I'm glad you don't know about it. But if you do, that's primarily what it's teaching. The faith movement. Conceive it. Believe it. Take it. It's yours. And so you have these teachers doing things as ridiculous as looking at their wallets and speaking into their wallets and saying, you are full and big and $100 bills are flowing out of you. And if you say it enough and believe it enough, it has to happen. That is not, that is not uh, what this passage is teaching, beloved. You can't get that out of here. It's in a context it's not saying that. It's not communicating that. So just a, just a note on that. Mark 9.24. This is good. Immediately the father of the child cried out, looked back at the text, and he said, I believe. I... Help my unbelief. This is very different, the father's request here, compared to the leper's appeal that we saw in Mark chapter 1, verse 40. In that passage, it says a leper came to him imploring him, pleading and kneeling and said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Very different. This, in this case, he's just saying, Lord, if you're willing, I know you have the power. That's not even in question. I'm just not sure you want to do it. So it was there it was just a question of Jesus' compassion. And, and we know how Jesus responded. He said, I will, I will. But he was certain of his power. Very different here. The father of the demon-possessed boy was, you know what, so it's just awesome. He's transparent here about his eternal struggle to fully believe in Jesus' power and ability to help him. His desire was to believe so that his boy might be healed. And so you hear this, this desperate father here pleading with Jesus to, to help him overcome his doubts. And skepticism with a stronger faith. Get this, he, he sought help to believe in Jesus from Jesus. Calvin comments, a great commentator from ages past, great Bible scholar, he declares that he believes and yet he acknowledges himself to have unbelief. These two statements may appear to contradict each other but there is none of us that does not experience both of them in himself. Another writer said, quoting Dwight L. Moody, another famous theologian, said there are three kinds of faith. There is a struggling faith, like a man in deep water desperately swimming. There is a clinging faith, 
like a man hanging on to the side of the boat. And resting faith, like a man safely within the boat and able to reach out to others and help them get in. Many, like this father, have a struggling faith. Faith becomes a struggle because one must believe in the improbable against all odds. One may have a resting faith until life's storms threaten to swamp the boat and one feels like they are about to drown. I love this passage. Beloved, if we are honest, if we are honest, we struggle. Maybe you have a resting faith right now, but there's a storm a-coming. They just keep a-coming. And you too will end up struggling with your faith. So I have a few points here of application. Listen, don't base your faith on the weakness or failures of others who follow Jesus. That would just be a, a simple point in application. And I say that because here the disciples of Jesus failed. And we'll get to them in a second. But that impacted the Father's faith that Jesus now could heal His Son. It's a mistake, beloved. Brothers and sisters in Christ, they're going to fail. Okay? I wish we didn't, but we do. If our hope is built upon how well my brother or sister does in their faith, in trusting in God, that hope will be shattered on a regular basis. My hope has to be built upon Christ and Him alone and His power to come through. Not my dear brother or sister in Christ. And this is, tragically, this is what takes so many people down. Because they put their hope in men or a woman or another brother and sister in Christ. People put their hope in a pastor. Don't do that. And pastors fail. And when they do, boy, they take people with them left and right because they, they put their hope in that man. He's just a man. That's all he is. Put your hope in Christ. One says, look to the more powerful one, Jesus, who stands in the place of God. True faith, beloved, is a decision in the face of all, to the contrary, that Jesus is able. That's what it is. Second, understand that maturity as a Christian means growing in your faith. I wish that when we became Christians, I wish it was this way. God just dumped 100% flawless faith into our lives. Like, boom! Perfect! No clouds, no inclusions. On that grading scale, I am a perfect diamond. Man, that is just not true. We must grow in our faith in our Christian life. And that's why Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 3, he was giving thanks. He says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. And we could spend an hour just on that, but faith is growing. One writer says, The faith of Christians should keep growing all their lives. 
Do you understand that? What that means is we don't get to a point, oh, I'm 60 now, and I've been a Christian since 20, I'm good. I finally reached perfection. Again, I wish that was true, but it's not. We continue to grow in our faith all of our lives. It says they should trust God more consistently and more extensively as they grow older in Christ. A growing faith indicates a growing Christian. That's what it means to be a Christian. We're going to have to grow in our faith, which means where we are today, beloved, is Lord willing, not where we will be a month from now, a year from now, two years from now. Third, your faith will be challenged in various ways. You can bet on it. You can count on it and at different times in your life. Beloved, don't do what so many people do. Don't fake your faith. Don't fake it. This man was transparent. He didn't say, I believe. And all the while, he's wrestling with the doubts that are running through his mind. He didn't do that. He said, I believe, but... I got doubts. Your your boys couldn't do anything for him. The the experts in the law over there are questioning even you're really the Messiah. Help. Be honest with God and other people about your struggles and rely upon God's help to overcome, beloved. Call out to Him. Cry out to Him for His help. For He is able. Alright, second point. Christian faith, beloved, is confidence in God, so we must refuse to have any faith in ourselves. We must refuse to have any faith in ourselves. This story and the lesson we can learn from it never would have occurred if it were not for the unexpected failure of the disciples to cast out a demon. Think about it. If they were successful... The story wouldn't have been recorded. There was nothing to talk about. I say it's unexpected because as we have already talked about or noted, the disciples had previously exercised the authority that Jesus granted them over demons and found success. Okay, They had success. Mark chapter 6, verse 13. So, what in the world went wrong here? Why did a solid pattern of success lead to failure? In this particular case. Well, guess what? That's what the disciples were wondering too. Look back at the text. Mark chapter 9, verse 28. So it's all said and done. Now they're in private. And he says, When he had entered the house, the disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Beloved, the disciples were confused. okay, And no doubt a little embarrassed by what had just occurred. Jesus, as He had done before, came to the rescue of His poor boys. Jesus permanently, as we saw in the text, evicted the evil spirit with the simple command, come out of Him and never enter Him again. Verse 25. He made it look easy, but the disciples found it to be impossible. Why were the disciples unable to cast out the demon? Let me kind of build this argument a little bit. It seemed that they failed to place all their faith in God to do what they were unable to accomplish. One writer says this, 
having previously been able to exercise demons, cast them out, chapter 6, verse 13, the disciples assumed that they could do so whenever they wished. In other words, it appears they begin to take their power, the power that Christ gave them, for granted the power that was on loan, as if it was actually their power to exercise according to their will. And they forgot that they were powerless to overcome evil apart from God. Apart from God's power. When Jesus told His men in verse 29, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer, He is pointing out to them, I believe, the ongoing need for His disciples to rely upon God to do His work in and through their lives. One writer says this, they had failed to realize that there was no hope to dislodge the demon except through a believing appeal to the power of God. They had failed to maintain their continued sense of dependence upon God's power through continued communion with Him. Another writer states it this way, the disciples had been tempted to believe that the gift they had received from Jesus, Mark chapter 6, verse 7, was in their control and could be exercised at their disposal. This was a subtle form of unbelief, for it encouraged them to trust in themselves rather than in God. See, why did Jesus tell them they needed to pray? One writer says, prayer is faith turned to God. Prayer is faith turned to God. Prayer is the focusing and directing of faith in specific requests to God. And both faith and prayer testify that spiritual power is not in oneself, but in God alone. Prayer, beloved, should. This is what prayer should be. It's not me requesting all of my wants from my cosmic genie. It is not that. But it is a constant reminder of my absolute dependence and reliance upon a sovereign God. See, you know, I know we, we make light sometimes in the Christian community of praying over our food. But Jesus did it. And we're instructed to give thanks for what we eat. But it's actually a really good practice if we do it with the right mindset because most of us eat more than once a day. Right? Most of us, okay. So that means at least once or twice or three or the Lord only knows, times a day, you are reminded that God provided you that food. And that's kind of important because without food, you die. See, something as simple as food, the very nourishment you need to continue to live, to breathe, to function, you come to God on a daily basis. It's something so simple and say, I recognize again, I am completely dependent on you. That's what prayer is. Dependence on God. The disciples asked, beloved, even their question says, why could we, look back at verse 28, why could we not cast it out? 
Even the question reveals kind of an inaccurate or incorrect focus. Why couldn't we do it? It would have been more proper for the disciples to say, why couldn't you do it, God? Right? Because if they had recognized that it was God working through them, that it was His power, not their own, and somehow it failed, then that would be the appropriate question. But it failed because they believed it was now their power. And God won't have any of that. They had failed, beloved, to see that really they're imperfect instruments or tools through which God's perfect power is carried out or put on display. That's all we are. Imperfect, and I'm being kind, imperfect tools or instruments through whom God displays His perfect power. One writer says, just listen, presumably they, the disciples, had come to regard their power to heal and exercise as their own autonomous possession. means they had the right to do with it as they wanted. Rather than being a commission from Jesus to realize His delegated authority afresh or anew each time through dependent prayer. And Mark here is suggesting then that self-confident optimism may feel like faith, but it is in fact unbelief because it disregards the prerequisite of human powerlessness and prayerful dependence on God. Did you get that? Your self-confidence may feel like you've got faith. That's a mistake. Our confidence is to be in God and God alone and what He can do in and through us. Now, if we are being honest again, I think, I think we are more like these disciples. Sometimes we're so critical of these guys. We, we should be careful. Because <laughs> the more we find out about them, the more we go, oh man, I'm kind of like that. How often, beloved, do we try to live for God? Right? Try to live for Him, which is good. It's honorable. But we try to do it in our own pathetic strength. Our own self-confidence. And how often does that result in utter failure? Beloved, the list just goes on and on. I can tell you of one person after another who tries to conquer sin in their life through their own power. Believing they can do it. And they do for a while. And then they fail miserably. And usually, the last condition is worse than the first condition. Plunging headlong into that sin. It is misplaced faith, beloved. It is a form of unbelief. But guess what? Failure doesn't have to be devastating. It doesn't have to be devastating if we learn from it and acknowledge how absolutely dependent we are on God for everything. It wasn't the end of the road for these poor disciples, but if they could learn the lesson, and by the way, they wouldn't right away. It would still take them a while. As we go through Mark, you'll see they will continue to fumble the ball miserably. But they did learn eventually 
that they were absolutely and completely dependent on God for everything. And failure has a great way of making that point to us. Failure is not all that bad if we learn from it. Just think of this verse, John 15, 5. Jesus says, I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in Me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from Me, you can do nothing. Something? You can bear a little fruit. Apart from Me, you can bear a little fruit. And call it your own. He doesn't. He just doesn't say that. And this is how Jesus talks. He's so extreme, but he's so right on the money because he speaks for God. Apart from me, you can do nothing, beloved. Number two, another application: the success can lead to a temptation to start thinking we are the reason for our success. Huh? So pastors do this often. They have some success in ministry. I'm not even sure what that means anymore. For a lot of people, that just means there's a lot of people in the church on Sunday. I don't, I don't think that's success, necessarily. Unless the people are being changed and telling other people about Christ and growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord. But whatever. People, they define success. Pastors do this. They begin to think they're the ones making it happen. Alright, so that's pastors. I'm aware of that. It's a danger for me and others. We do this. Do you guys do this? Maybe at your job, things are going well, and you start thinking, hey, look at me. Finally working out. All that training I got, all that knowledge, I'm finally putting it at work, and woo, no wonder I'm doing so well. Beloved, that is dangerous because the disciples had a season of success. But they forgot why. And they started to think for a second, for a moment, hey, we're, we can just do this, man. Yeah, bring your boy over here. Out! Uh-oh. You see what I'm saying? Beloved, if you read, write this down. And it's a good lesson. First Chronicles. First Chronicles chapter 21. And read verses 1 through 7. First Chronicles chapter 21, verses 1 through 7. King David was a mighty man of God, a God after, a man after God's own heart, according to the scriptures. The greatest king that Israel ever knew. In fact, Christ is a descendant of King David. And he will be the greatest king this world will ever know. But David made a mistake. David was granted much success through God. But he thought, I'm strong. And my military is really strong. And so he asked his commander to take account of all his men that were in his army. And that was a mistake, beloved. God punished him and he punished the nation for that arrogance, for that misplaced trust for putting confidence in his army instead of his God. Three. And we're almost through. 
Based on this, beloved, we have no reason to be proud people or to look down on others who are struggling. I mean, who are legitimately struggling with faith or in their faith. If there is anything praiseworthy about my life or your life, you know why? It's because God is at work and He may have been at work for a really long time before there's even anything really evident going on that, hey, look at that! And then we're so crazy, we go, yeah, look at me! Look at me! Woo! Oh, man, that's pathetic. It's pathetic. You know that sign you see driving by and says, men at work? Right? We need one and we need to keep it with us all the time that says, God at work. And if there's anything good going on, everyone goes, oh, that's because God's at work. That makes sense. God's at work. God's responsible for that good thing in that person's life. And if we took that attitude, beloved, and if we reminded ourselves of that, when someone else is struggling, we wouldn't be proud. We wouldn't, we wouldn't look at them and go, man, you're pathetic. I mean, I got this right a long time ago, but you're still, wow. That's just a failure to recognize who did the work in you. In regard to diamonds, beloved, large clouds, as I said, can affect a diamond's ability to transmit and scatter light. And those clouds are very much like the doubts that you and I harbor, that we experience. The doubts that come into our lives that we allow to take residence. The doubts that we have about God or His power, His ability to overcome the sin that we're fighting with or His ability to take care of us or provide for us or or even the fact that He's coming again and all of His promises will be fulfilled just as He had, has said them. And those doubts distract or lessen the brilliance and the beauty of our faith. We need to, we need to ask God to help us. God, I believe. Will You help me with this unbelief? And in regard to diamonds again, cracks, they say, close to the, to the surface, breaking the surface, they may reduce a diamond's resistance to failure. You know, those cracks are like the confidence we place in ourselves. It makes us weak and it sets us up for sure failure. So abandon it. And pour all of your confidence and your hope and your trust and your acknowledgement in God and His power and His strength. Spurgeon said, that is right, amen, brother. Spurgeon said, a little faith will bring your soul to heaven. A great faith will bring heaven to your soul.